Well, good morning, all. This is Eric Sorensen with you from my office. Just got back from a week in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, where I was doing a bunch of uh, teaching. I got to teach through the book of Galatians and got to preach a couple sermons on Sunday. Uh, and so as a result, I'm starting a little late today with you because, frankly, my whole life feels like I'm running behind at the moment. Uh, I always have this illusion when summer comes, always, every summer, that it's going to be a really restful time. And in fact, summer ends up being one of the busiest times of the entire year for me. Uh, and this summer is no exception to that, but uh, good to be here with you today as we continue our series looking at First Peter. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 12 through 19 of chapter 4 today. And we're going to be talking about rejoicing in suffering. It reads like this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. End of reading. Well, there's, uh, there's a lot here that we can talk about. Um, first of all, Peter says in the very beginning, we should not, nor should the early Christians that Peter is writing to, be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us. Now, I, I think it, our natural response is, in, of course, to be surprised if we ever face any sort of persecution or any sort of difficulty. Um, it is important to note right up front here that Peter is talking about actually going through fiery trials for the sake of Jesus. He is not talking uh, about suffering in general or about temptation in general, or there, although that can be applicable here. But he's talking about those that, that indeed face difficulty because of their confession. He's talking about those who are dealing with hardship because they refuse to back down from their faith in Christ. And so Peter says, don't be surprised if because of your confession as a Christian, you face some pushback. The point of it Peter says is it's not accidental. It's not something that's just happened to be coming upon you. As a matter of fact, it's actually come upon you to test you. End of verse or middle of verse 12 there. As though something strange were happening to you. So it is something that, I mean, it's a fine balance. Christians should not walk around with a sort of victim mentality, always looking, you know, with a persecution complex, thinking that everybody's against them. But at the same time, Christians ought not be surprised if the general culture if the world around them does not like what they stand for. It shouldn't be shocking. There will be a difference, and it could result in trials. 
Instead, Peter says, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I've always found, of course, that idea of rejoicing and suffering to be <laughs> the most contrary thing imaginable. Our human instinct is to shrink back from suffering as much as humanly possible, to avoid it at all costs. And yet here and in places like James and really throughout the whole Bible, we're being told to rejoice when that happens. Of course, you have Jesus saying the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. If people insult you for the sake of his name or persecute you for the sake of his name, rejoice because their forefathers treated the prophets the same way. And so Peter is, or Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, like you're, it's, it's showing that you are indeed uh, being faithful under pressure. And so there's a rejoicing here that goes beyond our circumstances. It's not based on our feelings or our emotions at the moment, but it's a rejoicing in a couple of things that he mentions here. First thing in verse 13, where he says, share, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. The word share there is the word koinonia in Greek. And that is where we get the word fellowship. So, so Peter, you could read it this way, but rejoice in so far as you fellowship in Christ's sufferings. When we suffer for the name of Christ, Peter is implying that there is a, we feel more closely connected, more deeply intimate with Christ. That there can be a growth in our sense of intimacy with Jesus if we are suffering for his name. Now, you do have these, you have examples of that happening all the time throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, where, say, Stephen, for example, when he's being stoned to death, uh, has Jesus appear to him in the midst of his suffering, and he is deeply comforted as he is able to get the strength to pray for the forgiveness of his persecutors. But then Peter gives a second reason here to rejoice and that is to re that we will uh, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, there's a sense in which the more comfortable we are here, the more comfy daily life is, uh, the easier it is to just kind of want to stay here. But when suffering does happen um, for the sake of Christ, then there's a sense in which we're looking forward to the glory that will be revealed. We're looking forward to what's coming. We're reminded that this place is not our home. As good as it may get here or as bad as it may get here, this is not what we were created for. This is a fallen place that needs to be redeemed and restored, and it will be, and that is what we as Christians are ultimately made for. And so we look forward to that more when we go through trials of many kinds because we look forward to the day when we will not go through that again. That's the idea being presented. Verse 14, if you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, echoing the Sermon on the Mount there, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that interesting? This is a wonderful theolo uh, theology of the cross verse here. You know, part of what we espouse when we talk about the difference between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory 
is a theologian of glory assumes that when things are going well, that that is when the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. It must be evidence of his blessing when you're doing well, when life is easy, when you can whistle the theme song to the Andy Griffith show walking down the street, that must be when God's really close to you. But here, Peter says, no, no, when you're insulted for the name of Christ, when you're suffering, when you feel uh, that it, you, you don't feel, in fact, his presence at all, but it feels like he's very distant. In fact, the theology of the cross says, no, that's when the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And we get this theology of the cross from verses just like this from Peter, that it is in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of seeming absence from God and seeming distance that he's doing his most profound work. That's the theology of the cross. You can find Luther talking and counseling friends about this uh, who are despairing because they feel that God is distant. And he'll say things like, oh, you have no idea. God is, you must be a very, very dear saint to him because he's inflicting such pain on you. He must be doing a great work. So contrary to what we think naturally as theologians of glory, because that's all we are naturally. But that is what this verse in 1 Peter says. And yet he says, verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as, or as a meddler. It, it, the point is, don't, you know, I've known plenty of Christians that have dealt with persecution or insults uh, and have claimed that, like, well, you know, that's just being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And sometimes it might be, but i got to tell you, a lot of the times it was because they were being dunces. Uh, it was because <laughs> of their own uh, arrogance or condescension, you know. I mean, if you're holding a banner with offensive words outside of an event, don't be surprised when people call you names. Like, that's not necessarily suffering for the cause of Christ. Um, it's real easy to, like, you know, fall into this martyr complex He's saying, no, no, don't suffer for your own sins. Make sure that it is for the cause of Christ and not because you were an idiot or, for that matter, a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, I think what Peter means here, because this seems almost redundant, we have to go back to the early context of the early church. When the term Christian was actually devised as an insult to Christians. The early Christians were not called Christians except by those who sought to uh, demean them. And it literally meant like little Christs. And it was a way of saying like, oh, look at these little Christs out there. It was, a, it was an insult. And Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, that name don't be ashamed of it. Take it in. Yeah, what's wrong with being called a little Christ? Go ahead, glorify God in that name. And so that name that started off as an insult has become, of course, our primary indicator today. Again, another good application of the theology of the cross there, that what you know Satan uses or thinks he uses to bring us down actually becomes our chief title. But, uh, for example... You know, Martin Luther says uh, in one of the writings, Satan comforts me abundantly when he reminds me that I'm a sinner because I am reminded all the more of the cross of Christ. But I digress. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
what will become the out, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, the word judgment there to where he says the judgment to begin at the household of God, this is not suggesting that the judgment coming against his church is something where he's sort of parsing out and taking condemning people that have already been made a part of his body. No, that's not it at all. Uh, rather, it's, it's a judgment that is for our own benefit. It's purifying us. Um, it's, getting, it's purging us of our uh, sin, and it's purging us of um, our too easy reliance on the flesh and getting us more and more dependent upon the Spirit. That's the idea there. So I don't want you to read that as, you know, uh, for condemnation is beginning at the household of God as if God is going through his church, you know, with those that he called sons and daughters and is ripping them out and throwing them into hell. That's not what's happening here. But it is saying that God is going to make sure that his church is not, he's going to bring judgment against his church to make sure that it, that it is purified throughout its history. And he's done that. That is every time throughout history, God is, um, has purified his church in one way or another. So the Reformation would be an example of judgment beginning at the household of God when the church had gotten corrupt and there needed to be some purging of some of those corruptions that were going on. So he concludes, verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that's really the point of it all. No matter what you're going through, whether you suffer or whether you're going through uh, a time of seeming abundance and comfort and blessing, the point of it all for all of our lives is to remember that we are not entrusting our souls to ourselves. We're not entrusting our souls to our government. We're not entrusting our souls to our friends. We're not entrusting our souls even to our spouse. We're entrusting our souls to a faithful creator, one that will stay by us no matter, no matter how many people abandon us in this world one who does not give up on us, one who is so committed to us that he sheds his very own blood on the cross to save us from all our sins. So that is where we entrust ourselves when we're facing the difficulties and trials of life on behalf of Christ. All right, folks, that is it for this week. I hope you have a wonderful week, and we will see you next Tuesday. God bless you.